Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we're going to learn about who is a Jew. Now, I get this question asked quite a bit, probably because I'm Jewish. And people, I think, are curious to know both about my identity as a Jewish person, but I think oftentimes they're asking because they're trying to understand their identity as someone who is probably not Jewish and how they are connected to either the Jewish people and the nation of Israel or how the church is really connected together as one people of God. We're going to learn about that in this episode. So let's go back in time and look at the history just a little bit. So the kingdom of Israel was established by King David from around 1010 to 970 BC. After King David's death, King Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem. After King Saul's death around 930 BC, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Judah and Benjamin were in the south, and the remaining ten tribes were in the north of Israel. The kingdom of Israel, which was the northern ten tribes, was destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And then these ten tribes were scattered into captivity. From around 597 to 582 BC, Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed in a series of invasions by King Nebuchadnezzar. The remaining Israelites were taken to captivity in Babylon. And so these first Jews, or Yehudim, first mentioned in Scripture, were the descendants of the tribe of Judah that occupied the land around Jerusalem, again known as Judea. In around 538 B.C., during the time of Ezra, it says the Judeans, in Hebrew Yehudim, returned from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And so the word Jew that we use today is essentially a derivation of the Hebrew word Yehuda, or Judah. So this raises another question. Is the modern-day reference to Jews akin to a nationalistic reference to Israel? Now, we don't find a single reference to Jews in all the five books of Moses, the Psalms, Proverbs, and pretty much all of the prophets, excluding Jeremiah and Daniel. However, in the New Testament, we see there's a shift in terminology. Yeshua was called both the king of the Jews and the king of Israel. And Paul referred to the Jewish people as Hebrews, Israelites, Jews, and those of the circumcision, or sometimes even those of the law. So the nation of Israel, we're talking about again the ten northern tribes, appears to not have fully been restored after the Assyrian captivity. Now there was a remnant that was left in the land, and we know that they repopulated those regions, but the majority of the ten tribes were scattered and never fully restored. And so most of those living in Israel around the time of Yeshua, especially those living around Jerusalem, were Judeans who had returned to the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. And you'll find today that many Jewish people are actually descendants, and I'm one of them, are descendants of the tribe of Judah. And you might say, well, that's pretty amazing. But the reality is that we were the last of the tribes to actually be taken into captivity. And so many of the Jews even today that were scattered into uh, what we call through the Roman Empire were scattered into parts of Europe and Spain. Many of us were actually brought out of Judea, and so we were Judeans. So that makes sense. And also many of us, you'll find, 
are actually of the tribe of Levi, because many of the Levites were in Jerusalem serving in the temple, in the second temple. Now today, in a modern context, the Jewish people are exclusively referred to as Jews, whether they practice Judaism or not. Judaism essentially is a religion. And so a a Jewish person today, by definition, under the the Jewish laws uh, that, that exist both here in the United States and in Israel, is any person born of a Jewish mother or has undergone a conversion to become what we call a proselyte, according to Jewish law, or halakha. Now, those who are citizens of Israel are officially called Israelis, but not all Israelis are Jewish. There are Arab uh, Christians and Muslims that live in Israel that have uh, Israeli citizenship. There are Druze, for example, that live in the northern part of Israel that have Israeli citizenship. And so Israel today has a very complex history, although the majority of the people living in Israel are actually Jews. And our complex history of the Jewish people has created another dichotomy for for those of us who are natural descendants of Abraham, but we also believe that Yeshua, that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. In other words, what term, this is where I've struggled a little bit, do we use for ourselves? Are we Jews? Are we Hebrews? Are we Israelites? Or are we just now Christians? And there's all kinds of different opinions about that out there, and I'm still trying to figure out what term to use without offending somebody. The other question is, what about the Gentiles, those who are of the nations who believe that Yeshua, that Jesus is their Messiah? Have they now become Jews? Or is there just this new thing that God is doing and all humanity who believe in Jesus have now become this global community of Christians, this new people that essentially is a brand new thing that completely replaces Israel and all of the nationalities and nations of the earth? Some people use parts of Scripture, Galatians chapter 3, for example, when Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Galatians chapter 5, it says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And then in Revelation chapter 21, it says, behold, I make all things new. I don't believe that, that Paul here is saying that, that we lose our identity, and we, we learned about this in the previous episode, the New and Everlasting Covenant, that men don't become female and female don't become men. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I, I believe when he's saying there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, he's saying that in terms of our salvation, there is full equality. And that in this new and everlasting covenant that God is administering with Israel and the nations, we are equal. There, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom, only equal sons and daughters of God. When Paul here in Galatians 5 is saying that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, he's telling the Jewish people, he's saying just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're saved. You can do something in the flesh, and it doesn't mean that you're going to enter the kingdom of God. That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying that only our faith in Christ through the love of Christ is what saves us. In other words, we have to be born again of the kingdom. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we dig into this teaching. And when God says, behold, I make all things new, he's talking about that, yes, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth one day. It will be built upon this foundation of this current creation and that there's a foundation that he built with the nation of Israel 
that, you know, in fact, in the New Jerusalem, we see that the 12 gates are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. And underneath the city are these 12 apostles of the Lamb that are essentially upholding. That's the foundation of this New Jerusalem. And so when God says, I make all things new, he doesn't say I'm erasing. He says, I'm building upon, I'm, I'm taking what is pure, what is mine, and I'm going to build this new thing, and I'm going to build it upon what is the foundation of old. And we're going to learn more about that in some other teachings. So I think that the erroneous viewpoint, essentially it's replacement theology, implying that God has somehow done away with the Jewish people, and for that part Israel as a distinct people group within the larger community of believers, is a false teaching. Israel, for example, is mentioned over 2,300 times in the Old Testament, 500 times in the prophecies, and 85 times in the New Testament. And again, the only way to rationalize these innumerable references to Israel is to somehow either assume that the prophecies have been already fulfilled regarding ancient Israel, or that these prophecies are spiritual metaphors for the new spiritual Israel, which is now the church. Now, Paul says in Romans 11, he says, concerning the election, he's talking about Israel, he says, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And again, there's that foundation again that goes back to Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the fathers. So this verse implies that Israel is elected or chosen by God. And to be chosen means to be entrusted with a role or a mission that is greater than ourselves. And chosenness means that we have both meaning and destiny and a greater purpose that is God-given rather than self-motivated. Paul says in Acts chapter 13, he is speaking about Israel's calling. And he says, for so the Lord has commanded us, he was speaking about himself and Barnabas, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so here he is specifically saying that, that his chosenness, his calling, and Barnabas's chosenness and calling was to go out into the nations to be a light to the Gentiles and bring the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And so therefore, Israel's irrevocable calling is to be a light to the nations. So when God assigned Israel her calling, she became the fulfillment of his purpose in the form of a nation. And the fulfillment of that purpose was to create a nation that would love him, love God, and love the nations, and ultimately draw them into this relationship with the God of Israel. And so here's this great mystery. Once you're in, there's no way out. Our Jewish identity, which is given to us by God, can never be erased. For example, there are no such thing as atheist Protestants. There are no such thing as Catholic Muslims or Hindu Christians, implying because those are religions based on certain faith principles. However, there are Jewish atheists and Jews that have converted to Buddhism or Islam and other religions. And of course, there are Jews that believe who, that Yeshua is the Messiah. And so a Jew cannot suddenly become an un-Jew by changing his or her religion. Now, it's true that some Jewish rabbis believe that if you, uh, they say, convert to Christianity, that you no longer are a Jew, which is strange because you can actually become a Hindu or Muslim and you're still a Jew, but if you become a Christian, you lose your Jewish identity. Now, that's not exclusively true with all rabbis, but there are some rabbis that hold to that. And so here's the big question. Is Jewishness a tribal identity, an ethnic affiliation, or is it a religion? Now, God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which might imply a tribal identity or an ethnic affiliation. We're going to see that it's a little bit more complicated than that. 
First of all, we need to understand that under the, this calling of Israel, God never precluded others from joining him through the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 48, the Lord said, And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. Now, a native of the land implies the right to inherit the land. And this verse infers equality between the native-born and the proselyte, the person who joined himself to God's people. And so now you're beginning to see, hopefully, that Jewishness is something much greater than tribal identity, ethnic affiliation, or even a religion. In fact, Jewishness implies citizenship. And not just citizenship in any nation, but specifically citizenship in the kingdom of Israel, which is effectively also the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. In Luke chapter 22, it says, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So kingdoms have kings, and the kings have subjects. In fact, we are the subject of the king. And so it's not our identity that matters, only that of the king. And our, In fact, our identity becomes that of the king. And this relationship to the king establishes our citizenship in the kingdom. This is a little bit, if you think about this, it's really quite different from the kind of democracy that we have established where, you know, representation of the people and we elect kings and really the king is a reflection of the people. It, it is totally, totally, completely opposite in the kingdom of God because we, we're, the world is not going to elect Jesus as the king of the kings and king of the world. He is, he, it's his kingdom. He is going to establish his kingdom over all the nations of the earth. And those who are in Christ our identity is formed in him. Our, we are subjects of the king. We, our citizenship is in his kingdom because of who we are in Christ. And Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, in fact, he says, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And what Jesus is basically saying, he's, he says, if your identity is in me, you're going to become a pillar in my temple. You're going to have a name that I'm going to write. In other words, I'm giving you an identity that is in me, and you're part of my kingdom, which is coming down from heaven, the New Jerusalem, and I'm going to write on you a new name that I give you. In other words, our identity becomes entirely that of the king. Now, citizenship in the kingdom of God requires God's covenant. And the Jewish people are unique in this regard because we're the only nation on the face of the earth to be formed by God's covenant. Citizenship also requires God's chosenness. And the Jewish people, again, are unique in this way that we're the only people group to have been chosen by God to become his nation and his kingdom. In Amos chapter 3, the Lord said, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
Now, we previously have seen how God's new and everlasting covenant has been now open to the Gentiles, to the nations. And for this reason, Paul says that God has also chosen the Gentiles. And he says in Romans chapter 9, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And so God's covenant and his chosenness with all who are in Christ makes us equal sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And this is why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Jewishness is inherited the same way that citizenship in the kingdom of God is inherited. You have to be born into the kingdom or born of a parent who is already a citizen of that kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 3, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is that no person can become a child of God unless they are first born anew of the Spirit of God. And this is why it says in in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, going back to what we learned earlier in Romans 9, that the Jewish people are the rightful heirs to the kingdom of God. He says here in Romans 9, verses 3 and 4, he says, My brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the services of God, and the promises. So these promises belong to Israel, but God has the right to define the terms of his citizenship, and he has the right to enlarge or expand its, its borders or boundaries. So God's term for citizenship requires each of us to be in Christ, born again of the Spirit of God. Therefore, we are called heirs to the kingdom. And as heirs to the kingdom, we receive our inheritance through citizenship in the kingdom of God. In James chapter 2, the Lord says, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? And this is where things get a little bit difficult for the Jewish people. Paul says in Romans 9, he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Meaning just because you're born into the the Jewish people, just because you're born as the lineage of the descendants of Abraham, just because even you are circumcised in your flesh, even saying that you do all of these things, He says, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. He says, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And that's a really powerful and sobering statement because, again, you know, you're born into a Jewish household, your mother is Jewish, your grandmother, great-grandmother is Jewish, that makes you a Jew, then suddenly you're in the kingdom. And Paul is saying, that's not actually accurate. You, you have to be born again of the Spirit of God, and just because you're the seed of Abraham doesn't mean that you're going to get into the kingdom. He says, only those who are the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so again, citizenship in the kingdom was promised to the Jewish people, and this promise implied a sense of responsibility and certain privileges that under these, the old covenant were conditional. And the new covenant is the fulfillment of these now unconditional promises which are in Christ. And so, to recap again, to inherit the kingdom, the Jewish people are required to come under the lordship of their king, Yeshua. 
And refusing his lordship is the same as rejecting the promises of his citizenship. Now, they're still Jews, God's chosen people, but they have refused to submit and have therefore renounced their citizenship in the kingdom. And for their rejection, it says they will receive a stern judgment from God. In Matthew chapter 8, it says, many, Jesus said, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Because of Israel's unbelief, Paul says, and he's using this cultivated olive tree analogy, he says some of the natural branches have been cut away and removed, and branches from the nations have been grafted in contrary to nature. And so he says in Romans 11, verses 17 and 18, If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Being grafted into God's kingdom does not require the Gentiles to become Jewish. However, it does imply to them a degree of what I would call Jewishness, really going back to the foundation of the church, which is the kingdom of God, or as I prefer to say, Hebraic. Now, Paul referred to the kingdom as the commonwealth of Israel. And the definition of a commonwealth is essentially an aggregate or grouping of communities or countries with shared interests. Israel was one nation comprised of 12 independent tribes. And therefore, the kingdom of God is also one nation comprised of every tribe and tongue and people on the face of the earth. And one last but extremely important detail, the Jewish people were not just called to be a nation, we were commanded to be a family. And Jesus said in Matthew 12, he says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And family members have a unique relationship and responsibility towards each other. Many people would give their life for their child. In John chapter 15, the Lord said, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Our bond with our natural kin is really strong. But how much stronger should it be with our spiritual brothers and sisters who are in Christ? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Imagine what the kingdom of God will look like when we finally see the fullness established in the earth. And I'm talking about the fullness of God's love revealed through his people. I mean, it is going to be a world filled with love, the love of Christ and peace where all of God's children reflect his perfect love and glory. So let's go ahead and summarize everything that we've been talking about. Our shared identity, yours and mine, is in the Spirit of God, not in our flesh. And our citizenship, our joint citizenship in the kingdom of God, is with our true brothers and sisters who are in Christ. We together have been circumcised in our hearts and have received the same spirit of adoption. Now, the fact that Christianity is rooted in biblical Judaism does not make or require the Gentiles to become Jewish, nor does it presume that the Gentiles replace the natural descendants of Abraham, who is God's firstborn nation, Israel. But it does mean that the nations would be equally sharing and desiring of the same things that are important to God. 
These include his holy convocations, such as the Passover, which is our communion, the Sabbath, healing the sick, caring for widows and orphans, feeding the poor, sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth, and making disciples of all people. And most significantly, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, the salvation of the Jewish people, and the restoration of the kingdom of God. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.